Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer has been rolling through a new series that brings a biblical focus to family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting and living looks like within the home. Today's talk is titled, Magnanimous Marriage. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end to find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. This morning we speak about the magnanimous marriage. Now, magnanimous, it's not a word that we use very often, probably because we don't see it so much anymore. I mean, how many times you, you scroll through Facebook or YouTube and you see pictures and videos of road rage? You know, somebody cuts somebody off and, and now we've like somehow violated somebody's family honor and, you know, desecrated your grandparents' grave or something and, and, and people are wanting to just duke it out and fight it out. Or somebody goes to a fast food restaurant and they forgot to put ketchup in the bag and so I'll, clearly that's a signal to me that I need to rip the cash register off the counter, you know, and smash it off the floor. I mean, that's reasonable. That's what we see in society. We are a society today that feels like we must always be pleased. I should always be happy at all times. Everything that happens in the universe should surround what pleases me. And what we see here is that a lack of magnanimity is, is a result of personal pride. I'm too important. I should always be happy. I should always be pleased. I should never be inconvenienced. I should never be feeling hurt or pain. God forbid that we live on a cursed, fallen earth and that I should experience pain. And so we don't see magnanimity that much. It's, it's, it's not a word you've probably used in quite a long time. It comes from two words. We put them together. Uh, magna, which means something large, like to magnify, and animus, meaning a soul. So a magna animus person is somebody who is a big person. Sort of like when your little brother would hurt you as a kid and you wanted to punch him back, and your mom says, why'd you do that? Well, he hit me. She says he was little. Consider, you know, that fact that he's smaller than you. You should have been the what? The bigger person. A big person is someone who's able to take pain from others and not respond in kind. And God is the one who gives us the ability to do just that. Do you need magnanimity in your marriage? Oh, every day. We need it daily in our marriages. In fact, it's required. 1 Corinthians 13, also called the love chapter of the Bible, it talks about love bears all things. It's the ability to absorb pain. Colossians 3.13, right before the apostle speaks to men and women in marriage, he says this, that we are to be bearing with one another in love. To bear, uh, that word to bear or forbearance, it's this Greek word that means to hold back. In the Septuagint, which is the Old, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word bearing or forbearing describes how God held back the rains from falling. Rain is what should have naturally happened in the sky. Enough moisture accumulates up there, it's supposed to fall. It's what would naturally happen if the Spirit of God weren't himself holding it back. That's what it means to bear one, with one another. It means when somebody hurts me, what is natural is that the rain should fall. What's natural is that I should give you what you gave me. In fact, I'm gonna pay you back with interest because after all, I'm not the one that started this fight. That's what's natural, is just to let the rain fall, just to let it out. But the Spirit of God helps us to contain that frustration, to contain that anger. It's what spiritual people 
do. It's magnanimity. If you haven't already, open up to the Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. We're going to approach conflict, and we're going to see what little people do. I'm not sure what little animus means. You know, uh, magnanimity is big, big soul. What's little soul? Just little people, okay? We're not talking about people who are short, but little of soul. That who we are on the inside is so small, so frail, and so weak that we cannot tolerate any pain or inconvenience before we just let the floodwaters of our anger out. That's what little people do. So little people, we're going to see here, they feed the cycle of pain. And there, is there going to be pain in our marriage at times? Okay. If you think that there should be no pain in marriage, it's because you're single. Uh, my wife and I, when we got mar- before we got married, babe, is this true or what? We never fought. Now, granted, we, were only in, we only dated for about two and a half months before we got engaged, but uh, we, we were engaged probably a good nine months. And so there's a period of about a year or so, but we were always together and we never, never fought. We only ever had joy, only ever had peace, only, I mean, it was a, it was a Disney cartoon with birds landing on our shoulders and just blue skies all the time. And then we got married. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be that funny. And then we realized, you know what, there's a lot more to one another that we realize there's more flesh to one another. We bump into one another more often. When you're dating, all you do is you get all dressed up and, you know, you look good and you're, you smell good and you act nice and you're going to nice restaurants. Of course you're going to be happy. There's not a lot to bump into each other, but when you get married and you've got to decide how we're going to spend money and how we're going to spend time and do we go to your parents' house or my parents' house for Christmas and now the collision happens. Natural, naturally, marriages will have disagreements. I had a lady, one of our previous churches, uh, she had been married a whopping five years. So like she was a veteran married person at this point, right? She was weeping to my wife telling her that she couldn't believe that after five years, her husband and her still had disagreements and fights. Five years, like as if like you graduate out of disagreeing with one another at some point in time. Can I tell you, all healthy marriages do still have conflict. We disagree on things. I would even go as far as to say that if your marriage has zero conflict and zero disagreement ever, that's also not healthy. It means one mate has so beaten down the other mate that emotionally it's not worth having an opinion. And you just become one of those couples that's like, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, you know? And you just, you don't ever have an opinion. You don't ever get in the way of what your mate wants because it's too painful when I've done that in the past. I learned my lesson. And so conflict, being able to discuss disagreements is healthy in a marriage. You don't want to have too much where you're always conflicting and you don't want to have it where you've never disagree with one another. Instead, we learn how to conflict well. We, we fight clean. But little people here, they feed the cycle of pain. Now that, that, makes, that means we have to look at the cycle of pain. You'll notice on your handout, if you've got a bulletin this morning, it'll, it's also on the screen at some point, uh, that we have the cycle of pain. And you're gonna look at that and say, well, that's pretty simple. Uh, cycle of pain looks like this. You start with an offense. Now, sometimes as mates, we know when we're hurting one another, right? Other times we don't know. Like I genuinely didn't know sometimes when I've hurt my, my wife because I'm a man and sometimes I can be insensitive and say things that I didn't realize hurt people. So what that leads to then is I do something offensive and then my wife feels pain. And now she has a choice. What do I do with that pain? 
Do I respond in a magnanimous way, absorbing that pain and giving grace? Or do I do what comes naturally and let the rain fall? And then more often than not, we do a reaction and we give back pain. In fact, we give it back with interest. We give it back with a little bit of extra on it because you have it coming. You, how dare you treat me this way? And then this person, when they receive the pain, whether they intended to hurt you or not, they feel justified in hurting you now because you look, you deserved what I gave you and more. In fact, let me add a little bit on top of that and we just keep hurting each other. And then we receive pain and then I hurt you back and then I receive pain and I hurt you back. That's the cycle of pain and on and on it goes like Newton's cradle. You ever play with a Newton's cradle? Looks like this. Oh, there it is. Oh, listen to that collision. You ever play with one of these as a kid and it just goes back and forth? It's meant to illustrate Newton's third law of motion, okay? And so his third law of motion is, as you see there, for every action, what do you have? An equal and opposite reaction. So what's natural in nature is that we should hit one another and that I should hit you back and then I should hit you, and then you should hit me. And this is on and on it goes, and we just call this marriage. And then we come to church and we dress up and we smile as if that doesn't happen at our house. Okay, so that's, that's Newton's third law applied to marriage. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's natural. It's what we see occurring naturally in the universe. But don't be too impressed with doing what's natural because the Bible describes the natural man as someone who doesn't know God someone who only lives by natural cause and effect. The Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. He won't accept it because they're spiritually discerned. So we don't wanna be natural people. Well, I'm just doing what anybody would do. Well, just what anybody would do is natural. It's the lost person. We don't wanna just excuse our actions and our, the evil that we give our mate because that's what normal people would do. We're not, I don't know if you notice this, but in Jesus, are you a normal person? Now, the Bible calls you, in particular, peculiar. I don't mean that in a bad way. It just means you're different, that we're to live excellently. We're not to live just what's natural, but when I receive pain, I don't have to let the rainwaters fall naturally. I can forbear. By this power of the Spirit of God, I can hold back that anger. I can hold back that pain. I don't have to give her what she gave me. She doesn't have to give me what I gave her. Otherwise, all we do is we're just Newton's cradle. I'm gonna hurt you, oh, I'm gonna hurt you back. Oh, I'm gonna hurt you, and I'm gonna hurt you back. And on and on and on, this perpetual motion machine of pain continues to clack, 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 and we hurt one another over and over again. Let's look at some of these reactions. In verse 31, he's going to give us some examples of reactions. Newton's cradle here, bang, I'm gonna hit you back, bang. These are our reactions. When I experience pain, this is what will come up naturally. This is what we will naturally do apart from the forbearing spirit of God. So let's look at them. Verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Now, if I were just to read verse 31 and move on and be like, I'm not that. My wife might be that, but I'm not that. You know? so I don't do these things. Let's move on to the next verse. But we can't do that. We gotta pause here and examine what these words mean so we understand, am I reacting in pain or am I responding? So these reactions here, things that further Newton's cradle of conflict, bitterness, Bitterness is a smoldering resentment. It's a brooding, grudge-filled attitude. And it comes from replaying the offense 
over and over and over in your mind. You've gone into, the, into your man cave, you've put on the video on the TV, and you've just watched that offense again. Oh, how dare they do that? Can you believe that? You know, and we, we rewind it again. Oh, it's just as bad as the first time I watched this rerun. And we rewind it again and again and again, and we keep replaying how they have how they've harmed us, how they've hurt us, and we grow bitter in our heart, and it makes us contentious so that we're easily offended, so that when we're around our mate again, the slightest thing that they do, how dare you? You know, and we just, we're on edge. We have no more marital armor on anymore. We've just peeled it all off, and it's just a raw, open wound, and the slightest touch bothers us. That's where bitterness leads us to. It's that replaying in our mind, it's holding a grudge. Wrath is a different word. It's the Greek word thumos. We get the word tempest from it. You ever been to sea when there was a storm brewing and the sky grows dark and the winds start blowing, the, the warm front hits the cold front and the water starts just moving and the boat's up and down and it becomes unpredictable. You don't know where those waves are gonna throw you. You don't know where that wind is coming from. You don't know when that lightning is gonna crash and strike. And so a wrath is, an, is, some, is where you're out of control. You're done brooding about it. You've watched the reruns. Now it's time to live it out. I'm done holding it in. I'm gonna give you everything that I have. It's just, it's out of control. You just say things that you don't even think about. And we just, and just crash, crash, the lightning hits. And that's, that's wrath. I'm, I'm done holding it in. I'm not gonna hold back. I'm not gonna forbear. I'm gonna let you have it. The bad thing is the Bible says a fool gives full vent to his anger. So when we behave in a wrathful way, it shows that we're not walking in the spirit. The Bible literally says we're playing the part of a fool, somebody who doesn't have enough internal fortitude and strength of character. You're not a magnanimous person. You're not big soldier, little soldier, easily offended. And so when I get hurt, I just start crashing in anger and I just vent it and I let it out. Psychology might tell you it's good to vent your anger and to let it out, but the Bible says that it's a fool that gives full vent to his anger. The wise man is able to keep it in. And by God's grace, we can forbear that anger and not let the rains fall through the power of the Spirit of God. Well, after exhausting yourself in the tempest, after all, even a tempest at sea, it's gotta die down at some point. It leaves us with anger. Aristotle used this word anger, the same one that's used in our Bible, and he described this word uh, orge with, uh, as being grief with anger, okay, or desire with grief. And so what he's describing here with this word anger is you are at the same times sad and furious. Have you ever been so mad that you cried through your anger, that you're furious in your heart and you just, you've gotta let it out and you're just weeping and you're mad and you're sad all at the same time? That's this word, anger. You're just so furious that your anger and your tempest failed to change your mate. Is there anybody here who's found that by using anger, you've been able to effect positive change in your mate? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good thing you didn't. Okay. James tells us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we are angry with our mates, often what we're doing is we're trying to intimidate them to a place where they'll never hurt us like that again. What do we want from our mates from that exchange? I'm hoping that as a result of this, that you'll be loving to me, patient with me, kind toward me, tender toward me. Does your anger usually produce that in your mate? 
I haven't, I haven't found that that works very well yet, you know? And so the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We want a righteous mate, someone who treats us, treats us with kindness, who is repentant in spirit, but anger won't produce that. In fact, when God led us to faith, what is it that produced repentance in our heart? It's Romans chapter two and verse four. Bible says, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance? Oh, there's that word forbearance again. Okay, and his patience means long suffering. That it says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What is, supposed to, is meant to lead you to repentance? The kindness of God. I mean, wasn't your heart warmed when you saw that despite the fact that we're sinful people before God, God should judge me, God should send me to hell, but he didn't, and in fact, in not sending me to hell, he actually died in my place? And we see that kind of magnanimity, big-souled God that we, that we serve, and our heart is warmed, it is broken, and we see our own sinfulness in light of God's magnanimity, and our heart is broken to repent. It's that same thing that brings repentance in the hearts and lives of our mate. It is kindness. We talked about it several weeks ago where it heaps burning coals on their head. It, it gives them an internal sense of, of sadness, internal sense of repentance. How can I keep being mean to this person who's so loving to me? That's what produces repentance. Anger doesn't do that. Let's look at the next reaction. Clack, clack, clack. Here's another one. Clamor. This is a shout. It's an outcry. It's a, it's a public outburst. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 9, it describes Paul in, when he is before the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of 70 very legalistic men in Israel, and it was mixed up with Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. So instead of having them all attack Paul, Paul decides to play a, to, to make fun with this, and he says, hey, let's talk about the resurrection. And he knew he could split the hall right there in half, and now you have all these angry legalistic men shouting and screaming and debating, tearing their clothes, and it's just this giant 70-man brawl. That's clamor. It's this, just this outcry. It's, it's gotten noisy at this point. If you and your marriage are experiencing clamor, it means your neighbors know you're having a bad day. Have you ever heard that? Gone out to put out the trash, and I can hear the neighbors in their house, you know, a block away, and I can hear them. And I have. That's clamor. It's when we've gotten noisy about our anger, and we're done trying to hold anything in. We're, you know, we're very vocal. It involves things like smashing dishes, you know, slamming doors, storming out of the room, stomping. My dad told me one time about a story when he uh, got into a fight with uh, his father-in-law before he and my mom got married, and he just couldn't get along with my grandpa. And he said he stormed out of the house, he slammed the door, the, the father-in-law comes out in the stoop and just watches him go to get in his car and leave, and he slams the car door and looks at him. He stomps on the accelerator to leave the driveway, leaves you know, just squeals the tires and leaves these marks in the tires as he skids out in the road and he hits something and breaks the axle. <laughs> he said the father-in-law was just looking at him going, and so what do you have to do? Hat in hand, he had to come back in and ask for help from the guy that he had just stormed out of. So don't do clamor. Clamor is a, a difficult thing to walk back from. I mean, when you're fighting and you've gotten to the place where you're throwing chairs, you're slamming doors, you're breaking dishes, or God forbid, you threw the dish at your mate, uh, it's really hard to walk back from clamor. The last one here is slander. Okay, so at this point, you've had ongoing pain. You guys have shouted at each other. You've been bitter. You've been playing the video in your mind. You've, you're angry. 
you've had maybe the tempest, you've had these outcries, now you're at the place where you're slandering your mate. It means you've come to a place where you didn't just disagree with something, you don't like them anymore. Can a, can a couple who's supposed to love each other ever come to a place where you just don't like each other? Like, you don't even want to be around each other. I don't like you, and quite frankly, I don't, if I don't like you, I don't want anybody else to like you either. And so what we do is we, we slander, we speak evil of our mate to people. It goes something like this. You're, maybe you're newly married, and you didn't realize that in marriage, sometimes you do argue and fight. And so you pick up the phone, you say, hey, mom, you wouldn't believe what Johnny just did again. Oh, tell me, sweetheart. Oh, he did this, he did this. And she says, well, I tell you, I told you not to marry him. He's too much like your father, you know? And so you just share these little stories back and forth about slandering because I don't just want to be mad at my mate. I want you to be mad. My wife, when we first got married in her early 20s, my wife thought she'd have a lot of fun girlfriend time. She'd go out with all these ladies to activities and stuff, and she'd come home to me just sad. She says, I just didn't really have much to talk about because these ladies, they'd get together for tea or they'd meet at McDonald's, let the kids play in the playground, and all the ladies wanted to do is complain about their husbands and all the bad things they're doing and how miserable they are in their marriage. They're slandering their mate to others. It's not enough that I don't like you. I want you to look down on my mate. I want you to feel bad for me that I have to live with such an ogre, such a troll at home. I want you to feel bad for me. This is slander. By the way, slander is what Satan does. Revelation 12.10 says Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the one, like Job, going to God and saying, the only reason he loves you is because you gave him stuff. Take it away and he'll curse you. This is what Satan does when he tries to, it's the ongoing defamation of somebody's character. Where we want, because I'm mad at you, I want other people not to respect you either. So I tell everybody I know about just what a no good something or other you are. Now I'm not talking about taking this to a productive conversation. You're struggling in your marriage and you need to go to a counselor. That's not slander at that point. You're, you're working with someone who's helping you through the problem. But slander is just, you don't care who hears it. I'm gonna share with my mom. I'm gonna share with the girls at McDonald's. Or worse yet, you ever catch yourself wanting to share with your children? I don't care if you're married or divorced. You don't slander your mate to your children. What we've done at that point is we brought our children into the middle of a marital battle and we've put them on the front lines with us on either side. We, our kids are heavily involved now in trench warfare and they're scared and they just wanna go home. They just wanna cease fire. But we have brought them into the middle of the battle by slandering their dad who they love and their mom who they love and there's this ongoing battle. We don't slander one another. The last reaction is malice. It's wickedness of the mind. It's where you are so done with this person that you're starting to fantasize about the evil things that may happen to your mate. And that can happen, you know, they're just, they're praying to God, would you strike their car with a meteor? I don't mean one that kills them, but you know, just ruins their day. Just give them something just to, just to hurt them, just to make them a, li a little bit as sad as I am. You know, and so malice is when you, start, when you start desiring bad things to happen to somebody because you're so mad at them. Malice left alone often leads to revenge because God doesn't usually avenge in our timetable. And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we want vengeance when we're the ones at the wrong. And so often malice will lead to vengeance. He says these are reactions. It's what Romans 12, 17 calls repaying evil for evil. You gave me evil, I'm gonna give evil, evil back. And all that does is fuel Newton's cradle. Clack, 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 
pain, pain, pain. And we just keep hurting each other. And on and on and on this goes. In fact, some of us have lived in reactive marriages so long, we don't even realize that our marriage is unhealthy. We think it's normal because for us it is. And you don't know what a healthy biblical marriage could look like. It's sort of like my dad when I was growing up as a kid. Um, Sometimes he would come into the house after feeding the pigs. Remember, my dad was a builder. He also had pigs. He'd come in. It was dinner time. And he would smell exactly like the pigs do. And we, we didn't have to see him when he came in. I didn't have to hear the door. Three rooms away, we could smell my dad. And we're, we weren't gentle children. We were a group of nine farm kids. And so dad would come in, ah, oh, dad, oh, you stink. Dad, dad, you reek like a pig. Dad, get out, change your clothes. Please take a bath, do something, you know. And we'd come out there. We'd just all kind of come upon him like a pack of dogs, you know. Dad, come on, change, you stink so bad. We don't want to eat with that. And uh, I remember my dad was always so indignant. He's like, What? Like, he was always so shocked, as if being with pigs doesn't make you stink. And he he would always go, what? And he would smell himself. I don't smell anything, you know, as if he doesn't stink. Now, in reality, did my dad stink? Oh, you wouldn't believe. I can't describe to you in polite words how bad my dad smelled. But he couldn't smell himself anymore. He was suffering from what we call olfactory fatigue. Olfactory fatigue is when your nose gives up. It's when your nose has been telling you, buddy, get out of here. This place is awful. There's something toxic. There's something noxious here. Get out of here. Hey, hey, get out of here. And and you you stay there anyway. And eventually your nose is like, call it in, boys. Take a coffee break. This guy's done. I mean, he's not listening to us at all. And so you stay there in the smell, and it infects who you are. It gets into your clothing. But you can't tell that you smell anymore because it feels normal to you. And if, it's the same way in marriage. Sometimes God tells us these reactions are, are sinful and they're ugly and they're dirty and they stink. But we've lived with some of these reactions so long, we feel like it's perfectly fine. And when people point out from the Bible that no, that's actually sin, we get indignant like my dad and we go, there's nothing wrong with clamor just letting out my anger, and that's healthy for me to vent my anger. Oh, there's nothing wrong with slander. I'm just sharing my opinion with people. There's nothing wrong with this. And what it is, it's olfactory fatigue of the soul, that our conscience is tired of telling us, hey, that's sin. Hey, stop that. It's sin. And eventually our conscience goes, call it in, boys. (laughs) This guy's not listening to us anymore. He is persisting in this sin. He doesn't even realize it's wrong anymore. Instead of these reactions and living in them, what does the Bible tell us to do with this stuff? He says, put off. It's talking about clothes, taking off the clothes that don't belong to us anymore. These reactions are dirty clothes of the lost man. We don't behave that way anymore. Like my dad, the kids were begging him, Get, take off those clothes and put on some clean ones so that we can stand to be around you. And can I tell you, if you're a person who's living a life of these reactive behaviors, you smell just as bad, but you don't know it. And people aren't gonna want to be around you, including your mate. And I know that's hard to say, and it's even harder to hear, but all of us have reactive tendencies in our hearts because after all, it's only natural. But with the power of the Spirit of God, we can hold back the rain and keep those natural things from happening. And then we can experience a grace-filled marriage, a magnanimous marriage where we are large-souled, where we're big enough in our soul that we're not easily wounded, we're not easily hurt, we don't return evil for evil. 
Big people, magnanimous people. Number two, they end the cycle of pain. At verse 40, 32, chapter four, verse 32, we're gonna look at that in a minute. In, a, in real life, let's say you have a Newton's cradle on your desk and children come in, and you know what they're gonna do. They're gonna clack that thing until you're ready to throw it out the window. And so how do you stop a Newton's cradle? Do you just wait for it to stop clacking? No, you're not gonna get any work done. And so at some point in time, you're gonna have to stop that. You're gonna let the ball hit your hand, you're gonna try to catch it, and you're gonna slowly let that ball down so that it doesn't hit the other side and create another reaction. That's how you stop a physical Newton's cradle. Well, how do you do it in real life? How do you stop the Newton's cradle of marital conflict from continuing just to create a series of reactions? In the same way, we gently grab hold of that ball. We're more concerned about our mate's well-being than just satisfying my personal sense of justice, and we gently let it down. Chapter four, verse 32, now gives us not reactions, but responses, ways to gently let the ball of Newton's cradle hit without hurting our mate and stopping the cycle of pain. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kind here, it doesn't just mean to be a nice person. Kind here means that you are looking to furnish the needs of somebody else. You're looking for the needs that they have and you're looking to take care of those needs. That's what the word kind means. That when somebody shows you pain, instead of immediately responding in anger, you look for how, what, what do they need out of this? What is causing them to behave like this? And then you seek to satisfy that need. Because sometimes even good people, we can behave uncharacteristically. Good, godly people can do things that are hurtful at times. It's, I mean, it's sort of like my dog. When we were growing up, I had a little dog named Rascal. And uh, we raised him up from just a little itty-bitty puppy. And he was just the sweetest, most loyal dog we ever had. But then as a family, we went through tough times. And when I say tough times, I mean, we were starving. We, my dad didn't believe in welfare, and we just had no food. I remember coming home from school sometimes and my mom would just be crying, there's no food. And I would search the house and sure enough, there's like a half bottle of mustard in the fridge and that's it. There's nothing in the freezer. I looked through the cupboards, there's nothing there. I looked on top of the fridge and there's a dusty box of, of just like flaked baby food. Remember that stuff? And it was like seven years old, but I was so hungry. I remember pouring it into a bowl and mixing water and just to have something to eat that night, I would stand by the garbage at the junior high just trying to collect government issue cheese from the kids' trays or anything else they were throwing away so we had food, okay? That's context. That's how poor we were. I say that so you don't judge us for not feeding our dog, okay? We had this little dog, Rascal, and he, if the children are starving, the dog doesn't have any food. My, I remember my dad just saying he's gonna have to learn to hunt. He didn't even have scraps to give him, and so this dog got skinny. He got hungry. He'd never had to hunt before in his life. Well, he was an Iowa dog, and we were surrounded by corn, so guess what my dog hunted? Not rabbits. He would yank out stalks of corn from the ground, drag it into the yard, and I kid you not, he would shuck the corn. And you would see him in the yard and he'd just be munching down on this field corn and eating it. Well, one of my brothers comes in between the dog and his corn with his starving dog. You ever try to get between a starving dog and his food? The dog reached around and bit him in the face, just little puncture marks all over his face and blood is draining from it. What do you do with a dog like that? Well, I remember my dad, he took like an old jump rope and just, dime, 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 you know, he just beat the dog. I mean, that's, he was just upset. What should we have done with this dog? When we looked at him, we say, we know this dog has never bitten anyone before. He's been a sweet dog. We've had him since he was a puppy. And we should have looked past the initial offense and say, that was unusual. What did, he, what did the dog really need? 
He needed food. He needed someone to be kind and to give him food and he won't behave in that way. Likewise in marriage, sometimes we're going to have something really painful happen in our life and then our mate's gonna come along and hurt us further and we bite him in the face. We do something uncharacteristic, unusual, but extremely painful. And our our first instinct is to grab the jump rope, you know, and beat our mate. What does our mate need though? That is what it means to be kind. What is happening in my mate's heart right now? What is driving that behavior? What hurt is going on in their life that's making them behave in this uncharacteristic way? But you might be in your marriage or know people in their marriage. You have a friend, a neighbor down the street, not you, but somebody, you know, who's struggling so much and you've been in a reactive marriage from your mate so long, they've hurt you so many times, you actually kind of view them as the enemy. That can happen. Can you love your mate like an enemy? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 44? Love your enemies. Even if your mate is, is an, your enemy today, they're the ones that you see as your opposition. Jesus says, love them. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be your sons of your father who's in heaven. God is saying, evidence the fact that you're truly born again. Love like I love. Speak well of those that speak evil of you. Love your enemies. Do good and pray for those who persecute you. For God himself makes his son rise on the evil and the good, sends his rain on the just and unjust. God takes care of the crops to feed atheists who hate God. God can love like this. Can you love like this? But Jesus asked the question, for if you love those who love you, people who only earned it and deserve it, what reward do you have? Lost people, tax collectors, they do that. Christians, we love in a very different way. We love like God does. We love because it's who we are. We don't love because it's earned. And so we are kind. The next word here is tender-hearted. It means to be compassionate. It, it literally means that you, are, you feel so much for what the other person is feeling that your, your bowels are moved. Not like you just ate at Taco Bell, you know, but, but that your bowels are moved in like a sensitive way. You've watched some sad little puppies on the TV, you know, or you've seen like these starving children, you know, in some faraway land and there's flies landing on them and your, your insides are moved because you've, you've put yourself in their situation. I feel your pain. I understand where they're coming from. I feel it. That's, that's tender-hearted. And God asks us to be tender-hearted with our mates, like we were just talking about earlier. Instead of just beating them with a the jump rope, we, we try to put ourselves in their situation. We try to think of what's needful, what's, what's driving this behavior, because this pain is uncharacteristic of them. My wife and I once went to a marriage conference type of thing. And it was a, the ministry that was putting on the marriage conference was called Battlefield Ministries. I always thought that was a unique name for those trying to heal marriages. You know, evidently love is a battlefield. So, but one of the things that they, they shared with us, and it sounds a little funny and stilted at first, but they said, when you receive pain, instead of reacting, one of the things they, they said that they did in their marriage was they would pause and they would reflect for a second and then they would ask a question they would, or make a statement. They'd say, it seems that something very important is going on in your heart right now. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? Now, right there, that's a response. That isn't something anybody naturally says. Poof. Seems like there's something very important going on in your heart right now, sweetheart. You know, our natural response is, poof, oh yeah, poof, you know, and we're, we're laying it into him. But with Jesus' power, we can forbear. By the Spirit of God, we can hold back that which is naturally wanting to flow out, which is angry words, possibly violence. We can hold that in because the Spirit of God is within us. And what they did is it gave them 
uh, it was just a marital tool that they used with one another to pause and reflect and say, hey, I realize this isn't who you really are. You're still the man I married. You're still the woman I married. This is unusual. There's some, there must be something causing you to behave this way, and I want to find out what it is so I can help you. Instead of beating the dog, I want to give the dog his food. That's tenderhearted. The last thing he mentions here is we need to be forgiving of one another. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. We want people to forgive us, but as soon as it's on us to forgive somebody else, all of a sudden it's kind of like, I don't know. I had it coming, them not so much. Forgiveness, it's the Greek word charizomai, which comes from the word charis, meaning grace. Charizomai means that we are ongoing showing grace. We are gracing our mates. Grace, remember, is undeserved, unmerited favor. And so it's, it's ongoing, undeserved love and behavior that we show toward our mate when they have hurt us. That's what forgiveness is. It means we give them a blessing instead of a curse. They hurt me and I respond with a blessing. My wife would often do that with us when we were, if we ever had conflict. I've said before, there's been many times we've had a conflict and later on my wife will just open the door where I'm brooding and she will come in with a plate of cookies and milk. Now, I didn't deserve those cookies at all. That was grace. Now that I'm on a special diet for my liver, I can't have cookies. So now she's gonna have to bring me in a plate of carrots with much diminished results, I might add. But it's grace. I gave her evil, I gave her anger, I gave her hostility, and she'll come in with a plate of cookies and just gent she won't even say a word. She just gently sits them down and she lets the cookies do the talking, okay? And that was just her way of saying, you know what? I'm responding, I'm not reacting in anger. And it usually worked, so let it work, gentlemen. You get more cookies out of the deal rather than getting angry. So he says, we forgive, he says, but as God in Christ forgave you. So we don't forgive according to the standard of the world. The world forgives a certain way. How do we forgive in the world? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, I give you one chance, strike, you're out. That's how we forgive. Or we forgive in a very limited way. I forgive you. You remember last week when you hurt me like that? You know, and then we forgive in a human sense. But here we're commanded to forgive as God forgave us. And so he begs us to study how did God forgive us? First thing we're gonna see here is A, that God initiates forgiveness. God doesn't wait for us to deserve love. Aren't you glad? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. If God waited for us to be worth forgiving, none of us would be forgiven, ever. We would all lock, stock, and barrel go to hell. So God initiates forgiveness. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. God initiated it. He started the whole forgiveness process. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we love God, we didn't start it, but that he loved us and sent his son, right? While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He says, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word that just means God's satisfaction against a crime. It's been, it's been satisfied. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And so it's not enough just that God forgives and initiates this forgiveness process. He says, we need to forgive in the same way that God does. God has called us to this. Now, when you have a marital conflict, who's supposed to be the one to initiate? 
Okay, let me tell you this. Matthew 18 talks about if your brother is the one in sin, you go to him. Matthew 5 says, if you know that your brother has sinned against you, you go to him. So whether or not you're the one who started it, you're gonna be the one who finishes it in a godly way. It doesn't matter who started it is what he's saying. Who's the one that initiates forgiveness? Galatians 6.1 says, when there's a brother in a trespass, it says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of meekness and fear. Who is it that reconciles first? Who is it that initiates the forgiveness process? It's the spiritual person. Doesn't matter who started it. If you did it, you know you've harmed them, initiate. If you know they have hurt you and you're feeling hurt, initiate it. That's what spiritual people do because it's what God does. B, we see that God forgave us fully. He will, it means he'll forgive us of any sin that we've done. First John 1, 9 is very clear about this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. What sin will God not forgive? Keep thinking. There isn't one. There's nothing, I mean, if God can forgive Paul who murdered Christians, Christian leaders destroyed churches. He's the man that God said, you persecuted me personally. If God can forgive Paul, he can forgive you. If he can forgive the woman at the well who had had five husbands and the one she's with now isn't her husband, he can forgive you. God can forgive anything that we've done. And so now we love that when it comes to us, but can you forgive your mate in that same way? Whatever you do to me, I have the capacity to forgive you. I can forgive you fully. Forgiving fully also means that God will not remind us of our sin later. Aren't you happy? I used to read these little tracts as a kid that called like, this is your life. And it was always like, someday when you get to heaven, we're gonna put a giant video projector up and all the world's gonna laugh at you while we look at your sins, you know. For an unbeliever, that's not too far off because the books will be open, you'll be judged by your sins. But can I tell you as a believer, you're never gonna be confronted with your sins ever again. Aren't you glad? Nobody's gonna see it. God himself isn't gonna look at them because what did God do with our sins? Hebrews 8, 12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Is God forgetful? God's not forgetful. What does it mean when God will remember your sins no more? It means he's choosing not to bring it up again. The Bible also tells us God puts our sins behind his back. It's not a game that God plays with us. It just means that God has taken our sins and put it in a place where neither he nor anybody else is gonna see it again, and it's gonna stay there. Micah 7.19 goes even deeper. It says, he will again have compassion on us. Look at the long-suffering of God. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Things that you walk on are things that are not valuable. You're not collecting pieces of pavement at home. Anybody with a pavement collection at your house? You don't. It's, it's, just, it's just something you walk on. And God says, that's your sins. When I've forgiven you, it's just, it's left behind. It's something that we tread underfoot. We walk upon it. It's not gonna be brought back up. He says, I will, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, back then, it would be, when Micah wrote this, it would be over 2,000 years before we'd have a submarine strong enough to go to the bottom of the ocean. When somebody talks about sins being thrown in the depths of the sea, that represented a place where it's never, 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 no, not ever, coming back. That's what God did with our sin. Under no circumstance will we ever be faced with our sin again. The Bible says we're to forgive our mates like that. Rather than getting into an argument and they start going, you remember last week, you did the same thing. You remember back in 1979, you did this, 
you did this, you know? And we get historical with one another. And we start bringing up all, dredging up all the past, which reveals that in our heart, we haven't really truly forgiven as, as God has forgiven. We see, see that uh, God forgives us continually. Look at Lamentations, chapter three, verse 22. He says, the steadfast love, by the way, that's his hesed, that's his unconditional love, it's love based upon him, it's his merciful, long-suffering love. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that every morning we wake up, God has this limitless supply of mercy. Mercy is the other side of the grace coin. It's God not giving us the punishment we did deserve. Did Rascal deserve a beating with a jump rope? Yes, he did. He had it coming. Mercy would be saying, you know what? I'm not giving it to you. I'm giving you what you need. This is what the Bible says God does for us with our sins every single day. That every morning we wake up, God has a, a new limitless supply of mercy to forgive us of all the sins we've ever done, the sins we are committing, and the sins we will commit. Now that's not a freedom and license to sin. Because if you're truly a believer, you don't want to sin. It grieves you when you sin. But what we know is that when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. We have a limitless supply of mercy extended to us, and that's what God has called us to. Every new morning is a new heaping bowl of mercy that we have for our mate, that it never runs dry, it never runs out. That's how God forgives. He forgives continually, consistently. Does God expect us to continually forgive our mates, or at times our children, or our adult children? God asks us to continually forgive. Peter comes up to Jesus in Matthew 18, asks this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter probably felt very generous because often people won't even forgive one time. You do me wrong, I cut you off, you're done, you're out of my life, I'm not gonna let you hurt me again. So when he says seven times, he probably feels very generous. The question here is, Jesus, should I keep track of the ways that people have hurt me? Should I keep a record of the wrongs that you have done? Consider uh, how God forgives us once again. Colossians chapter two, verse 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses, it's another word for sin, where we've trespassed the law of God. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of, there's the word, all trespasses. And canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, these he nailed to his cross. A record of debt was a bond. It was a evidence of something that you owed, that if you owe it long enough, you could be punished, sent to debtor's prison or other things. Your family could be enslaved. Bad things would happen. It'd be sort of like you, you're hard up on your luck, you need money, but you decide, you know what, I need money now. I'm going to go to a mafia don, and I'm going to get money from the mafia. And you borrow this great sum of money, greater than anything you can ever pay back, and you can't pay it back. And eventually, while they're fitting you for your concrete shoes, and they're gonna make you sleep with the fishes, right? They're, before that happens, though, somebody who cares about you and loves you, they come and they take that record of debt with the mafia, and they pay it off. They tear it up, they burn it, it's gone. The mafia now legally can't hold you for anything. They're not gonna come after you anymore. That's what God did to, for us with the law of God. Nobody's ever gonna come after you for these sins ever again. It's gone, it's, it's history. And so there's, there's no record of wrongdoing. God isn't going to say, well, you've gone one too many, you're, you know, you're done, I will not forgive anymore, now you're going to hell. 
So Jesus was, t- Peter asked Jesus, should I forgive seven times? And how did Jesus respond famously, depending on your translation? The, ES- the ESV reads, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Ah, so I just need a bigger ledger, Jesus. I just, need, I just need to count a little more clearly and longer then, but then I can say I won't forgive you. Now, what's Jesus actually communicating here? You stop keeping track. You forgive them so much and so often, you just let it go. You forget it. D, we see that when God forgave us, he restores us to our original position. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? In that parable, God is the father. Who's the prodigal? It's your neighbor. No, it's, it's us, isn't it? It's all of us. Prodigal, the wasteful child. A lot of times we think of him being prodigal because he wasted his time. He didn't just, or money, but he also wasted his time, didn't he? He wasted his whole life. His whole life was a waste. This is the boy who is so rude. He comes up to his dad and says, you know what? He basically says, I want your blessing, but I don't want you. I wish you were dead. You're gonna give me your inheritance someday. I want it now so I can leave you and go do my own thing and be apart from you. This is the height of rudeness. And so, uh, bizarre, you know, the father actually gives him that inheritance. The boy goes away and wastes it. And he squanders it on worldly living to the place where he has nothing. He's feeding pigs and going, man, I'm so hungry. I'd eat what that guy's eating right there. And then, ding, (laughs) once he's finally hit bottom, repentance starts to hit. And he's like, boy, I really blew it with my dad. Even my dad's servants are better off than this. They eat better than this. I'm just going to go back. I'm not going to try to be a son, but I... At least it's a better income, it's a better job. And so he goes back to his father and says the father seeing him come back a long way off begins to run to him. He saw him a long way off, which means the father was always looking for that reconciliation. He was always ready to forgive. The moment he's there, the father's ready. And then as his son is coming up, it says the father runs to him. Now you and I, we're thinking of a guy, you know, a pair of sweatpants. No, this guy had a robe on. For men to run, you had to gird your loins. You would take up the bottom part of your robe and tuck it into the belt. And you see this guy's spindly old white legs that haven't seen the light of day in like 30 years. And this guy just starts running in a shamed way to his son to, to forgive him. And when he catches up to his son, it's there that we see the restoration of the father. I just want to read to you what the father said. Luke chapter 15, verse 21. The son begins with his apology. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. When the father forgave the son, he forgave him fully, but he also restored him to his original position. How do we see that? First of all, the father says, bring a robe and put it on him. This boy, if he's feeding pigs and desiring what the pigs eat, he's not dressed very well. And so the father says, "Nobody, we're gonna put a new robe on you. We're not gonna look down on you anymore. In marriage, when we forgive and restore, we don't continue to look down on them the rest of our life. To give them a second class kind of JV marriage position, the robe has been put on. We're no longer, nobody's gonna be looking down on you. I'm gonna protect how you, how you are seen by others. I'm gonna protect your reputation. I'm not gonna drag your name through the mud to everybody that I know to let them know how, how long-suffering I was to be with such a troll like you. The father put a robe on him so that people would see him in a better light. Father also put shoes on his feet. Slaves were barefoot. This boy was barefoot. He himself essentially was a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to the world. But he comes back to the father. What's the first thing the father does? He's like, you're no longer a slave, you're a son, and he puts shoes on his feet. 
It's a sign of trust. Furthermore, it says the father gave him a ring. Don't think some decorative ring. It's not a decoder ring. It's nothing. It's a ring that is a signet ring where we get the word signature. You can sign off on things. And so this son is given the authority back to sign, if you will, the family name to draw off of the family's accounts to purchase things in the family name once again. He's restored back to his position. Moreover, the father says, kill the fatted calf and let us eat. When would you kill the fatted calf? Did you just do that every night? Did these guys just eat sumptuously like that every night? No, they, like you and I do, eat normally. Once in a while, we get the fatted calf. But when do you do that? You eat the fatted calf on special occasions, Christmas, you know, anniversary, things like that. And so the father is saying with this fatted calf, I'm bringing you in. I'm, not, I'm gonna protect how others see you. I'm gonna trust you again. I'm gonna put the ring on your finger and re-empower you with what you had before. And furthermore, I'm restoring you to fellowship. That's what this fatted calf indicates. We're going to celebrate. We're going to talk together. We're going to rejoice together because you're family. And so when we forgive, we've got to make sure too, not only that we allow them back into our life, we allow them to live in the same house, but we restore them to fellowship. I'm going to talk to you again. We're going to laugh again. We're going to rejoice again. This is how God forgave us. And now he calls us to forgive one another in that same way. When God forgave us, did he put a robe on you? Did he put shoes on your feet? Did he give you a ring? Is he gonna kill the fatted calf for you? Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God does that because God is magnanimous. God is as big a soul as you'll ever get. It's he, he's omnipresent. He's infinitely big. God can take an infinite amount of pain and not give us what we deserve in his mercy. Exodus 34, 6 says of God, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. That's that undeserved love, that hesed. For thousands forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. God can love like that, not because we're worthy. God forgives us like that because God is worthy. It shows the bigness of God's soul, that God is magnanimous, that God is enormous of soul, that he can endure this pain from a world and a history of people who hate him and still show love. When we love like that, that we are love, we love in a magnanimous way, that it demonstrates that we, like our God, are also big of soul, that it takes a lot to offend us, that we choose to be inoffendable people, that we're not easily irritated at the small offenses at one another. We're not always looking for revenge. We're not always having to be in a state where I'm always pleased at all times with all things by all people. Friends, that's, that's attributing to yourself godhood. It's only God that should be pleased at all times. We as humans living on this earth, we have to deal with dissatisfaction sometimes. And sometimes we have to allow ourselves to be hurt by others and still show them love, to respond, not to react. And when we do that, friends, it's, it's then that we demonstrate that we're children of the Most High because God says his, sends his reign on the just and the unjust. It demonstrates that our soul has been made big by Christ. And therefore, as God is long-suffering, I too can be long-suffering. And only then can we stop the cycle of pain. Our Father, as we close this morning, we just want to give thanks that Jesus has loved us with this everlasting love. 
God, I thank you that you have loved us in this way. Many of us in this room, God, in our hearts, we, just, we still feel like that prodigal. We are not worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. Just make me a, a guard, a janitor in the house of God. And yet, you're the one who says, I'm gonna clothe you with righteousness. Your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm gonna put the signet ring upon you. I'm gonna put the Holy Spirit inside your life, which empowers you to live uh, according to the family riches that are ours. And someday, God, we look forward to that day when our fellowship will be fully restored in eternity, when the fattened calf will be killed. We'll enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we will be with you for all eternity enjoying the magnanimity of our God. How great are you, God? In the meantime, Father, I pray for us in our marriages that you would help us to be magnanimous ourselves. Help us to be big-souled, just like our God is big of soul to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced, to allow ourselves to be sinned against, to experience discomfort and dissatisfaction and to still show love in so demonstrating that our heart has been made new by the magnanimous God and therefore we will be living as magnanimous, big-souled people. God, help us to be the bigger person today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. <laughs>